Over the past several weeks, we've given a lot of attention to the Bible. Of course, if we're doing it right, we'll always be giving our attention to the Bible. But we've been thinking not just about a particular passage or theme from God's Word, but about the Word itself as a whole. How were these 66 books recognized as canon, as God breathed over and against all the other Christian books that have been written and were around even 2,000 years ago? Why is it reasonable to think that the Bibles we hold in our hands today are anything like the original copies written so long ago and in different languages? Can we really trust what the Bible says? How literally should we take it? How does it relate to other forms of Christian teaching? These are all questions we've tried to answer and then some. Today I want to pose a question that is, in one sense, a conclusion of all the others we've asked, while also being foundational to them. The question is this, is the Bible the only source of God's revelation? In other words, is this book the only way that God has revealed Himself? Is this the only resource we have by which we can know Him? The short answer is, it's complicated. But this podcast is not called Complicated Truth, it's called Plain Truth. So let's dive deeper and see if we can take something that is a bit complex and make it more plain. The final attribute of Scripture that we're taking up today is its necessity. And here's my definition of the necessity of Scripture. While there is more than one way we can learn about God, we can only know Him in a saving way by listening to His Word. Put even more simply, the Bible is absolutely necessary for us to have a relationship with God. I want to start by going to a psalm that is crucial in explaining two distinct ways that God makes Himself known. I'm talking about Psalm 19. It begins, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. It's striking how David describes creation. He says that it speaks. It communicates something to us about the glory of God and the goodness of His work. I love how the Belgic Confession from 1561 puts it. It says that the universe is before our eyes like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. That seems to me to be a faithful way of expressing the truth of Psalm 19. Creation is like a book, and all the individual components of it are like letters that make up the book. Collectively, they declare to us truths about God, and all of us read it. As David says, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. We all hear the testimony of creation to its creator. But then, about halfway through Psalm 19, something significant changes. I want to read you verses 7 through 9 and see if you can detect the difference. This is what it says. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, the most obvious difference between the first half of Psalm 19 and the second half is that in the first half, David describes how creation speaks, declaring God's glory and handiwork. But in the second half of the psalm, he turns to the Bible, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, that sort of thing. Those are all things we hear not from creation, but from the scriptures. But there's another crucial distinction. In the first six verses, when David is speaking of how God reveals himself in creation, he describes him by using the word God. The heavens declare the glory of God and so forth. But when you get to verse 7, David changes the way that he refers to God. He begins referring to him as the Lord. And he does not only use that title once, he repeats it over and over. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, what's the big deal? Well, anytime you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord with all capital letters, that's a way that translators indicate to us that the writer was using the personal name of God, Yahweh. In other words, the word Lord, capital L-O-R-D, is not so much a title as it is a name. It's more personal than the word God. The idea that David is communicating then is that there are things we can know about God from creation but if you want to know God in a personal way, if you want to know God on a first-name basis, so to speak, you have to listen to His words. Now, throughout history, Christians have come up with two phrases to describe how God reveals Himself. The first phrase is general revelation. That's what David is talking about in the first half of Psalm 19. General revelation refers to the way that God has revealed Himself in the created world. The second phrase is special revelation. So there's general revelation and special revelation. Special revelation is what David is talking about in the second half of Psalm 19. Special revelation refers to the way that God has revealed himself in the written words of Scripture. So to put it even more simply, general revelation means that God has revealed himself in the world Special revelation means that God has revealed himself in the Word. And these two forms of revelation are not symmetrical or equal. As we see in Psalm 19, there are some things we can learn about God by observing and marveling at what he has made. But the only way for us to know God in a personal way is by listening to what he has said. The Apostle Paul picks up on this same idea in Romans 1. He writes, for what can be known about God is plain to mankind because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, there are certain truths about God that are plainly evident to anyone. 
You can look at the magnitude and orderliness of the created world and perceive that someone must have designed this. And you can look at the course of history, even the course of your own life, and perceive that someone must be guiding this. The problem, as Paul puts it, is that humans naturally, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. We don't want to be accountable to a creator. We don't want to admit that there is someone on whom we depend for life and breath and everything. So we take the truth that is plainly evident and we suppress it in unrighteousness. The result is that we are left in a state of being without excuse. There is no one who can perceive these attributes and suppress them in unrighteousness and still have an excuse before God. All of this leads to a very big problem for us as humans. And that is that we can perceive enough about God from the created world to be without excuse, but we cannot perceive enough about God from the created world to be saved. And this is precisely where the necessity of Scripture comes in. There is more than one way we can learn about God, but we can only know Him in a saving way by listening to His Word. The Westminster Confession of Faith does a tremendous job of summarizing the biblical teaching on this, so I want you to listen. This is from chapter 1, paragraph 1. It says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God to such an extent that men are without excuse, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will, which is necessary for salvation." So the confession points to three forms of general revelation. First is the light of nature, by which they were essentially referring to the human conscience. Every human, even those who are not believers, are made in God's image. And God has embedded into all of us a conscious, this innate sense that some things are right and others are wrong. We all have a concept of justice and injustice, of offense and restoration. That's what the confession meant by the light of nature. In addition to that, there are the works of creation and providence. Of course, the works of creation are basically what Psalm 19 is talking about. And the phrase works of providence is a way of describing the orderliness of created things and the mysterious ways that God operates in the outworking of history. So conscience, nature, and history, these things are sufficient in the words of the confession to manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God to such an extent that men are without excuse. You can hear how they are leaning on the language of Paul in Romans 1 when he said that we are without excuse. But the confession goes on, yet they, general revelation, they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary for salvation. So we can discern enough from general revelation to be condemned, but we cannot discern enough from it to be saved. Think about it this way. Imagine you have a favorite athlete. When you watch what he or she does on the field or in the gym, you can learn certain things about them, right? You can see their athleticism, their speed, agility, power. You can see all those things by looking at the works they do. 
You may even learn some things about what they do when they're not playing sports. Maybe they volunteer at a local shelter. Perhaps they make generous donations to charity. From that, you may discern that they are compassionate in addition to being athletic and fast and agile and strong. But that does not mean you know them. To truly know them, you would need to talk to them. You would need to have a relationship with them. In a similar way, when we look at creation and history, we can see the wisdom and goodness and power of God on display. But it's only when we listen to the scriptures that we hear his voice. And praise God, he has spoken. The confession goes on to say, Therefore it pleased the Lord at various times and in diverse ways to reveal himself and to declare his will to his church and afterward to commit this revelation wholly to writing. Therefore, the Holy Scripture is most necessary. God's former ways of revealing his will to his people having ceased. Creation, history, our conscience, all of these may be aids that God gives us to help us understand something about his power, wisdom, and justice. But it's in God's word that we hear his voice. This is where he has committed his words to writing, and it is therefore most necessary. I want to point you to some conclusions we can draw from the necessity of Scripture. We could say more, but I'll leave you with these three practical takeaways. First, whenever someone claims to speak on God's behalf, we should always judge it against His Word. When we considered the sufficiency of Scripture a few weeks ago, I pointed out that the Bible does not answer every single question we could possibly ask of it. It only gives us the answers that God deems we need. So there's a lot of room for us to take the truths and principles of God's Word and apply them to specific situations that arise. This is what the Bible calls wisdom, and God tells us to pursue it. But it also leaves room for people to rise up and speak where God has been silent, or even for someone to say something that actively contradicts God's Word. One of the conclusions of the necessity of Scripture is that because God has spoken definitively in His Son and through His Son's chosen apostles, the canon of Scripture is closed. Certainly, God's Spirit may choose to work through dreams or inclinations, through sermons or other teaching, and there are, of course, many things we can learn through general revelation, through science and history and so forth. But the Bible's necessity requires us to judge everything against what God has said within it. The second practical takeaway is that knowing God is not a matter of looking within ourselves or of admiring creation. Knowing God is a matter of listening to His Word. Chad Van Dixorn puts it this way, the most thoughtful or meditative person will not find true hope by looking within. And no explorer will ever find the way to eternal life merely by traveling through this wide creation. Again, we should not ignore our conscience, nor should we ignore what is to be learned of God's majesty and wisdom by paying attention to what scientists and historians can teach us. All truth is God's truth. But not all truth is God-breathed. If you want to know God, you won't find the answer within yourself. 
You won't find it in the most majestic of creation. You will find it most clearly in the words of the Bible. The third practical takeaway is that we should be urgent about getting God's Word to as many people as possible. If the Bible truly is necessary for a person to be saved, that ought to light a fire under us because there are many people who have yet to hear it. They have enough revelation to be without excuse, but not enough to know God in a saving way. So the necessity of Scripture ought to compel some of us to go. And it should drive all of us to support the work of cross-cultural missions, of Bible translation, and of evangelism even in our own circles of interaction. It's true that people need to see our good works so that they will glorify our Father in heaven. But along with that, they need to hear us tell them about our Father, the one who has spoken. He is the one who says, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Henderson Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about our church, you can visit us on Facebook or check out our website, hendersonbaptist.org.